In July 1993, Datuk Maud Maslan Idris, an assemblyman in the Malaysian state of Pahang, was busy climbing the political ladder. Wanting to rise even further, but tired of the difficult struggle against his rivals, Maslan needed help. Being a somewhat superstitious man, he sought out the assistance of a bomo, someone who could help him through magic and spirituality. Mohammed Afandi Abdul Rahman and his wife Mazna Ismail were well-known bomo in Pahang state, mainly because of the wife Mazna. She was once a popular singer known as Mona Fandi. While Mona wasn't ever a huge star in the music industry, her skills as a shaman earned her much respect amongst the more superstitious of the elite classes. Maslan soon met with this couple, hoping that their supernatural abilities could help him progress his career. Following their initial meeting, the husband and wife hand Maslan what they claim to be a magical talisman, something that will help bring him luck and make him invincible. Maslan walks away with a cane and a piece of headwear that supposedly once belonged to Sukarno, the former president of Indonesia, and also a promise that at their next meeting, the bomber will perform a special ceremony for a fee, of course. After parting with 500,000 ringgit and land titles worth another 2 million, a date is set for the mystical ceremony. Maslan arrives at the couple's home in Batu Talam at around 11 p.m. The pair are waiting at the house along with their assistant, Juraimi Hassan. They welcome Maslan into their home and the ceremony begins. They begin with a flower bath, a ritual that's believed to wash away bad luck. Maslan is then told to lie on the floor for the next part of the ceremony. Covered in only a small towel and with his head resting over a plastic basin, Maslan awaits instructions from the bomber. There's a commotion outside the washroom when the spiritual is being performed. It's the bomber's young daughter looking to be taken to bed. The husband leaves for a moment to take care of their daughter and put her back to sleep. After the distraction has passed, the couple prepares to complete the ceremony. The wife lays flowers on Maslan's head and tells him to close his eyes and wait for money to fall from the sky. Meanwhile, the husband signals to their assistant, Juraimi, who is waiting, hidden in the kitchen. Juraimi rushes into the washroom where the ritual is taking place, brandishing a freshly sharpened axe. Without any hesitation, he brings the blade down on Maslan's neck and with two strikes, he's dead. Mohammed and his assistant Juraimi proceed to dismember the body, cutting it into 18 pieces. They then dispose of the parts in a hole that they prepared in a storeroom out back and cover that hole with cement. The wife, Mazna, takes a shower to wash the blood from her body. It's the only known murder that the trio ever commits and there are disputes over their motive. But once they're finally caught and put to trial, the controversial case has the distinction of changing the Malaysian judicial system. And surprisingly, the wife becomes one of the most haunting figures in Malaysia's history. This is the story of Mona Fandey.
Welcome back to Memories of Murder with me, Agrit Bunyai. Despite the popularity of traditional religions such as Islam, Christianity and Buddhism, they are not the only beliefs that people have faith in across Asia. Animism and magic are still widely practiced and can often go hand in hand with these state religious practices. The Dukun in Indonesia, Mordu in Thailand and Miko in Japan are all examples of what we can loosely term shaman spiritual healers, fortune-tellers and magic users that people turn to in their times of need or when their religious faith is not enough. In Malaysia, these people are called Bomo and they can wield a huge amount of influence and power over society. Bomos generally use a lot of ritualistic procedures with traditional medicine to treat both physical and mental illness. They were once hugely prevalent across Malaysia, but these days the practice has diminished and is largely found in the more rural areas and villages. Now, I'm not going to get into whether this stuff is real or not, but what I will say is that most of the time, bomos and in fact all types of shamanism in Asia are harmless. Of course, there are cases of negligence where people have put their faith in these spiritual healers and come out the worse for it, but for the most part let's be optimistic here, and say that this was negligence rather than malicious intent. But there are of course those who abuse the system, that take advantage of people's beliefs and use it to abuse and extort their trusting patients. In 2017, the Star newspaper in Malaysia reported that over 1,100 reports were made against bomos. These reports included fraud and extortion and even sexual abuse. One case involved a man known as the Naked Bomo, who was accused of abusing underage girls. Despite this bad press, however, Bomo are still an accepted part of Malaysian society. In fact, during the case of the missing Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, Bomos hit the news again when one, claiming to be the king of Bomos, said that he could locate the plane using magic involving coconuts. Large companies will also employ the service of Bomo to ensure that things like corporate events will go smoothly. There are even mobile apps offering Bomo services that have become quite successful. The point is that these types of spiritual or magical healers are an inescapable part of Malaysian society and as such, whether it's an unshakable belief in their powers or an outright dismissal that such abilities can exist, everyone has an opinion. And that's why, when a prominent Bomo, Mona Fande, was implicated in a gruesome murder, the whole country took an interest. Born in Malaysia on the 1st of January 1956, Mazna Ismail started singing at a very young age and harboured dreams of becoming a famous pop singer. After she married Mohammed Afandi Abdul Rahman, she changed her name to Mona Fande, supposedly based off of her husband's nickname, and because she thought that this would boost her popularity. Her new husband promised to support her dreams of becoming a huge star and together they began working on Mona's pop career. For a while, things seemed to be going well. They recorded a nine-track album entitled Diana, which saw enough success to get Mona booked on a few TV shows. But as time went on and the TV appearances dried up, it soon became obvious to the pair that Mona's career was never really going to gain any more traction. But the couple did not despair. They had a new and possibly more lucrative idea. They would become Bomo. We don't know much about their early days working as Bomo, but it wasn't long before they'd made a name for themselves and they soon began putting together a list of high-profile clients that included wealthy businessmen and well-known politicians. 
Many rumours surrounded Mona at the time, including that she was the descendant of a king and also a famous water ballet dancer. Nothing has ever been substantiated, but these rumours did probably help Mona build up her client base. Soon the couple began living a life of luxury and were even able to purchase several mansions and luxury cars. One report even suggests that Mona purchased a small island off of Phuket in Thailand. By 1993, the couple was doing extremely well for themselves. And this was when they were approached by Maslan Idris, the Pahang assemblyman that they would later go on to murder and dispose of in a way that would finally give Mona the fame she so desperately sought. Once the murder had been committed and the assistant had finished disposing of the body, Mona and her husband immediately left for Kuala Lumpur with their daughter. Less than eight hours later, and now 300,000 ringgit richer, thanks to a payment that Maslan made for the flower ritual, the couple went on a shopping spree. This included, among other things, a brand new Mercedes-Benz, jewellery and even a facelift for Mona. For them, life went on as usual, as if nothing had happened. Unfortunately for them, however, their assistant, Juraimi, also went on with life as usual, and for him, that meant going wild and doing drugs. And because of this, just a few days after the murder, he's picked up by police on an unrelated drugs charge. While in police custody, for reasons that have never been released, Juraimi confesses to his involvement in the murder of Maslan Idris. It's important to note at this point that Maslan has already been reported missing. The cops know that he withdrew a large sum of money before he disappeared, but they never knew what it was for. In fact, while his disappearance was a big case for them, they didn't have any leads, so to speak of. If Jeremy had kept his mouth shut, it's quite possible that they never would have made the connection. But whether he was scared, high or trying to do the right thing, we'll never know. And that same day, he leads police to where Maslan's body is buried. Mona and her husband are arrested not long after, and so begins one of the most sensational trials in Malaysia's history. Following her arrest, it seemed that Mona was enjoying herself. With her brand new facelift and designer clothes, she enjoyed the spotlight. The combination of her polished celebrity-like image and the gruesomeness of her crime fascinated people. She would always appear cheerful and constantly smiling and posing for press photographers. At one point she even commented, It looks like I have a lot of fans. For the most part, she came across as poised and polite, but behind the facade, there was another, darker side. During one of her trips to court, an incident occurred. A photographer, desperately trying to snap Mona's picture, accidentally bumped into her. Almost immediately, the polished smile and friendly face were gone. Mona turned and spat on the young man, yelling some unknown curse at him. This was the side of the bomo that people had expected to see all along, an angry and vengeful woman, not the smiling starlet that turned up for court each day. Soon the rumours and gossip began to swirl. Some believed that Mona was a powerful black magic priestess, that she could fly and leave her cell whenever she wanted. Others believed that she could change her face and go without food for days. Undoubtedly, there were countless other rumours that were surrounding the murderous Bomo, but these all combined to make Mona one of the most terrifying people in the country at the time. She soon became the boogeyman. Surrounded by whispers and her own odd behaviour, she rose to become more than she could have hoped for. She was the Charles Manson of Malaysia. In the eyes of the public, she was so much more frightening than the crimes that she had committed. 
At one point during her trial, as one of the witnesses was giving a statement against Mona, the whole room is said to have heard a low, grumbling, quacking-like noise. The whole room was in shock. Later, skeptics tried to explain it away, saying that it was the creaking of the old wooden floors of the courthouse, but whatever it was, it exposed that people were terrified. During Mona's time in prison, the rumors continued to grow. Some believed that she would frequently use her magic to transport herself to well-known shopping areas to have lunch and sip tea. And while this may sound silly, it was taken quite seriously at the time. The warden of the prison where Mona's husband was serving his sentence was hounded by the press. As the reports became more and more sensational, the more pressure the warden was put under to put an end to these supposed outings, whether they were real or not. This may seem unbelievable, but the prison director actually had to ask Mona's husband, Mohammed Afandi, if these rumors were true, could he magically escape his cell? He even asked him, can you really escape these cells and walk out of the door? To which Afandi replied, yes, but only the ones that are left unlocked by the guards. Make of that what you will. Perhaps the guards were helping him escape, perhaps the magic Afandi used didn't need doors, or perhaps Afandi never left his cell after all. Regardless, the rumors and the fear continued. Mona didn't have it any better. Because of her association with black magic, very few people would talk to her during her time in prison. Most stayed away, and that's including the prison guards. During her sentence, there was only one guard that ever really got close to Mona, and she offers a very different account of the so-called black magic bomber. The guard, who Mona called Miss Ja, says that she was a devout Muslim who would pray five times a day without exception and would never leave out the optional prayers. In one newspaper report, it was claimed that Mona was reciting the prayers backwards as some kind of devil worship. But when Miss Jar asked her about this and whether she could really fly, Mona just said, Are you crazy? Floating is impossible and reciting anything backwards, well, that would be too difficult. From Miss Jar's account, Mona would seem to be a model prisoner, charming and polite and always ready to talk about family or share food recipes. But of course, no one else has ever backed up these claims because no one else was ever able to get close to her. But it's interesting, the Mona that went into prison was the person that Mona truly wanted to be. On the one hand, she wanted to be loved and respected, to be seen as someone wise and admirable. But the dark side of Mona, the one that committed murder, was the only way that she could get people to be interested in her. The trial of Mona, Mohammed Afandi and Juraimi was long and widely followed by the Malaysian public. Afandi and Juraimi testified under oath and Mona chose to give a statement from the dock. Whether or not the trio planned the murder together, during the trial, they each had very different stories. Juraimi testified that he wasn't conscious of his actions during the time of the killing, possibly hoping to convince the jury that he was under some kind of bomo spell. He said that Afandi had told him to do his job well or else we'll be in deep trouble. Afandi, however, said that he and his wife didn't plan the murder of the politician and that the death wouldn't have benefited them in the slightest. He claimed that they weren't even aware of Jeremy's plan and that's why they fled the scene in panic after the murder. Throughout the trial, Mona herself denied any involvement in the murder. She claims that her only contribution in the ritual was to collect the flowers. But prosecutors noted that she didn't give any justification as to why she didn't report the murder to the police after it happened. 
I might point out here that despite all of the rumours surrounding Mona and her taking the spotlight, she was never believed to have planned or carried out the murder. There was never any debate. Afandi and Juraimi had been the ones to commit the crime, and Mona was only involved because of her husband. It was her love for her husband that led her down this unfortunate path. Later, Mona would even hand the court an ultimatum. She said that should she be granted freedom, she would only accept it on the condition that her husband would also be freed. And she also said that she would accept any punishment that her husband was given as well. But her self-sacrifice never paid off. After 65 days and 76 witnesses interviewed, it took the jury just 70 minutes to reach their verdict. The trio was sentenced to death by hanging, and when she heard the verdict, Mona reportedly said, I'm happy. Thank you to all of Malaysia. And she was photographed smiling as she was led away to prison. The day before the execution took place, both Mona and Afandi were allowed to meet their family members for the last time. They were also given a last meal of KFC. Then, at 5.59am on Friday morning, the scheduled day for all executions for those who follow Islam in Malaysia, Mona, Afandi and Juraimi were hanged. Just before the noose was tied around her neck, Mona calmly uttered, I will never die. The guilty verdict for Mona, Afandi and Jeremy was based around a motive of money, that by killing Maslan they could take his money and his land deeds. But from what we know about Mona, she was already fairly well off, so that motive doesn't really explain everything. To me, the one thing that she didn't have the thing that she craved more than money and that she had tried to achieve through her singing career was fame. After her arrest, she courted the spotlight and claimed to have many fans. Even her final words could be seen as some sort of satisfaction that her legacy would never die. For me, this makes her all the more terrifying. Had she never been caught for the first murder, how many more would she have gone on to commit? After all, she was trying to build her brand through murder. And ultimately, she was right. She's had a huge impact on Malaysian society. The controversy surrounding her case was even a deciding factor in Malaysia's decision to abolish the jury system in 1995. Amnesty International even used her case to support anti-death penalty movements in the country. There have also been two movies surrounding Mona's story, a 2002 short film entitled Mona and another one in 2006 called Dukun. Dukun is the Indonesian word for Bomo. Dukun was actually banned from release shortly after it was made, but it was leaked online early this year and finally allowed an official release. It did quite well at the box office, perhaps signalling that Malaysia is not yet done with the story of Mona Fande. And that's it from this episode of Memories of Murder a fortnightly podcast about the most shocking crimes from across Asia. I would once again like to say that your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Is the show too short? Is there a crime that you'd like me to cover? Or have I gotten any of the facts wrong? All of this would help to improve the show. Or if you think that the show is fine as it is, your reviews on iTunes or social media would really help bring in new listeners and it would help the podcast to grow. Remember, you can find Memories of Murder on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, all the places where people hunt down their podcasts. Once again, thank you very much for listening and remember, don't have nightmares. Nightmares.